oh, but I'm not having biochemistry now. I have no food allowed. So um, I think we're going to change that over. Here we go. And I don't know about you, but I'm pretty excited to be here. Yeah? Are you excited to be here? Yeah? All right. So, um, so we're going to talk more about amino acids and some of the other things that might uh, form from, from these amino acids. So we have copyright, same assigned readings, some QR codes. And I think you've already heard this story once, but I'm going to put in some more details about it as we talk about how we go from uh, starting from phenylalanine and then putting hydroxyl groups onto that phenylalanine ring to form first with one, then another to, with tyrosine, and then using the same cofactor that we spoke about before, this uh, BH4. So notice that this B is next to tetrahydrobarin. This B should be down here for BH4. That's a biopterin uh, with, with four hydrogens. So that is going to be used to uh, hydroxylate tyrosine a second time to form another amino acid called L-DOPA. So remember the idea with these amino acids, like a trick question. How many amino acids might there be in the universe? Infinite number, right? How many amino acids are there, say, in a typical person or a typical animal? Well, I don't know, about 50 or 60, right? How many amino acids are commonly found in proteins? 20, right? So we're thinking about how we classify these amino acids. So here's an example for L-DOPA, which is an amino acid which is not commonly found in proteins. So then uh, L-DOPA can be decarboxylated with uh, vitamin B6 to form uh, dopamine, and then uh, dopamine can be uh, 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 hydroxylated in a different place. We're not on the ring anymore. We're in a different place, so we don't need a BH4. We use vitamin C to form norepinephrine, and then uh, norepinephrine can be methylated with S-adenosylmethionine to form um, epinephrine, and that's with the enzyme uh, phenylethanolamine and methyltransferase, PNMT. Right? And so kind of just with, I mean, we're not asking you to memorize structures, but sometimes it's useful uh, to see it. So if we start with phenylalanine, we basically have this phenyl ring with no hydroxyls. We get one hydroxyl, we have tyrosine, two hydroxyl, we have the catechol, right? The catechol is organic chemistry for a benzene ring with two hydroxyls next to each other. So we have our uh, a catechol containing amino acid. And then we decarboxylate it to form dopamine. And dopamine can be hydroxylated somewhere outside of the ring to form norepinephrine and then methylated to form epinephrine. Right? So these are the things that are happening. And of course, you know, I'm pointing out here with this little red arrow with, with homocysteine formation because it's coming from s releasing homocysteine. And of course, we're going to come back to this guy on Monday and talk about how this is dealt with as continuing what we talked about at the end of the previous session. Okay, so a deficiency in the production of dopamine can lead to a disorder called Parkinson's disease. Most of us have heard of Parkinson's disease and maybe have even seen a family member or a patient that has this characteristic uh, movement disorder where they have a tremor of the hands at rest and they have a persistent tremors. They have a shuffling gait, sometimes small steps, bent, stooped over rigidity. In fact, this was first described back in the 1800s by, by Dr. Parkinson in London, and he actually described this by looking at people in the street, and it became known as the shaking palsy. That's the shaking palsy. So uh, 
the way that this works is there's a particular place in the brain called the substantia nigra where there's these dopamine producing cells and there's a particular or a specific degradation in that area of the brain which then leads to a reduced uh, creation of, of dopamine and then of course um, we have, have these kind of symptoms. So an important aspect in the treatment of this disorder is considered a, a neurodegenerative disorder is to administer L-DOPA to a patient. And a little bit of a historical context of this, when this was first attempted in the 1950s, they would give some doses, a big dose of L-DOPA to a person that had Parkinson's disease. Guess what happened? Uh, problems. Yeah, lots of problems. Vomiting, neurological problems, because this was this massive dose of this thing. Right? And so L-DOPA would, would, would cause bad problems. Right? So then it turned out that they decided, let's try to ramp up the dosage slowly. Right, so they slowly started giving it, the person began to tolerate it, then it became uh, efficacious. It almost didn't become a therapy because people were afraid to do it because it made the person so sick. Right? So then it, it was learned that most of the L-DOPA, remember L-DOPA is an amino acid. They learned that most of the L-DOPA that was given to a person was degraded in systemic circulation before it had a chance to cross the blood-brain barrier. So then what was done is, is that they gave a combination dose of L-DOPA amino acid at a relatively low dose in combination with an inhibitor of the decarboxylase enzyme for L-DOPA. And what that would do is, is it would allow circulating levels of L-DOPA to stay at high enough levels to cross into the blood-brain barrier and then be delivered to the brain for production of dopamine in the brain. And that's how uh, Parkinson's disease can be treated. I have some friends with Parkinson's disease and they all have said kind of the same thing. Well, these drugs are helping, but I feel like the PD is getting me, you know, because it basically it works for very well. This drug works very well in early times, but then after 10 or 15, 20 years, they become less responsive to the drug as more and more of the neurons die off. Right? So it extends the life, but it's certainly not, uh, it's certainly not a cure. Right? Okay. So uh, we think about the degradation of these, where we have norepinephrine and epinephrine are degraded to vanillyl mendelic acid, which is excreted in the urine, and that's through the two pathways, monoamine oxidase and COMT, catecholamine omethyltransferase, and dopamine is converted to homovanillic acid excreted in the urine. So you could expect then a person, a patient that has Parkinson's disease and they're taking L-DOPA supplements to suppress their symptoms, you could expect to see elevated levels of homovanillic acid in their, in their urine. So we can think about that, that uh, production of those, those compounds which can be detected in the urine because there's a particular uh, uh, cancer called a pheochromocytoma. Pheochromocytoma is a tumor that's happening on the, the adrenal gland, the adrenal uh, uh, the adrenal um, medulla of the above, above the kidney, and of course, this is a, a region in the body where, f for for circulation, that we create a lot of epinephrine and the norepinephrine. So, if we have a tumor there, we should remember that if you have a tumor in a gland, one of the things that might happen is is that gland might produce more of the stuff that it normally pr produces. And of course, if we have then elevated levels of these uh, sympathetic hormones, you could imagine headaches, palpitations, uh, tachycardia, perspiration, hypertension, stressed out feelings, this kind of thing, a so panic attack. Right? So of course, this could be uh, diagnosed by looking at elevated urinary vanillyl mendelic acid 
because this is going to be character this is going to be forming from the degradation of those of those catecholamines very importantly you have to use a 24-hour urinary measurement to to see that and it has to be done during a symptomatic episode so if it's just happening at any period of time it might not work it has to be while the symptoms are present if we compare that to another amino acid serotonin with the 5-hydroxy uh, tryptamine serotonin is the majority of, of serotonin is actually synthesized in the gut, and that's to regulate um, uh, gastric motility. It's also synthesized in the platelets and, and serum, and of course it's useful as a, as a neurotransmitter in the central nervous system. And all of this uh, serotonin is derived from tryptophan, and when serotonin is metabolized, it's degraded into 5-indole acetic acid by uh, hydroxyindole acetic acid by the monoamine oxidase uh, degradation pathway. So the steps of doing this, when tryptophan is converted into 5-hydroxytryptophan, the cofactor is BH4, right, tetrahydrobiopterin, <coughs> and it's tryptophan hydroxylase. I'd like you to recognize that this is the same reaction. In a sense, it's the same reaction or analogous. It's an analogous reaction to the hydroxylation of phenylalanine to make tyrosine or the reaction where tyrosine is converted to L-DOPA because there's a, a benzene ring or there's an aromatic ring on, on tryptophan. So we make 5-hydroxytryptophan. The 5-hydroxytryptophan is then decarboxylated, releasing carbon dioxide. So what's the cofactor for that? Right? B6, 5-N-B6. Right? And now we have uh, serotonin. Okay. So carcinoid syndrome is, a, is another kind of cancer which is associated with uh, overproduction of serotonin in the gut. So we have these particular group of cells called the amine precursor uptake and decarboxylation cells that are in the gut. You heard about those in your histology classes. And if there's a cancer that occurs, a tumor that develops in those particular cells, <clears throat> then you might have an overproduction of, of, of serot serotonin. And that's going to lead to uh, uh, gastric motility problems, diarrhea, facial flushing, other symptoms like that. And so some people don't really understand these kind of nonspecific symptoms until, and then they, they um, are, uh, find out it's carcinoid syndrome. Turns out also that this, uh, this um, uh, elevated uh, serotonin also leads to an endocardial uh, fibrosis. So people that have this are usually um, referred to uh, a cardiologist. Right? So the, uh, because the, 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 Serotonin is degraded to 5-hydroxyindole acetic acid. This can also be measured in a 24-hour test. Of course, it has to be during uh, symptomatic episodes. Right? So, uh, so in some cases, when you're thinking about, about serotonin, uh, it's also found in the brain. And, of course, that means then that some, in some cases, as a, pe people could take a drug that might lead to the elevated levels of serotonin in the brain, such as the monoamine oxidase inhibitors, to increase the amount of circulating or, or amount of, of serotonin in the brain to, to slow down its degradation. Right? And so um, serotonin is also related to where it's the parent compound for melatonin. And I don't think we need to go through the pathway to, to, to synthesize melatonin from serotonin, but I think it's important for us to recognize that, that it's not a dead end. Typically, there's always another molecule. There's always another story of what we're talking about. Here's an example where melatonin can be formed from serotonin, another um, hormone end and neurotransmitter. Right? And of course, this is one of the reasons why, um, like I think we told you this story a month ago in the endocrine reproductive block, 
but just uh, emphasizing that, that this, this melatonin is, is well known, and all of your patients are going to know this, that, that melatonin is, is associated with their uh, uh, circadian rhythms and a possible seasonal affective disorder, and they're going to want to know, expect you to know something about that. So uh, here we have a clicker question, which is not going to work, and so we'll describe it, right? So, so what's going on here? He has the panic attacks, anxiety, hypertension, tachycardia that's just increased. Uh, it's, it's recent, and um, he's, they're just developed. And so, of course, this person, from what the things that we've discussed, he has the pheochromocytoma, uh, and, of course, that means they have elevated levels of catecholamine hormones, norepinephrine, epinephrine, and they degrade to VMA. So the right answer is A. Dihydroxyphenylalanine, you should be able to describe all of these other molecules Right, so dihydroxyphenylalanine is the same thing as the amino acid L-DOPA. 5-hydroxyindoleacetic right? acid is the degradation product of serotonin. Tetrahydrobiopterin is the cofactor for ring hydroxylation enzymes and does some other things that I don't care about. And histamine is an uh, uh, inflammatory mediator molecule as well as a gastric acid secretion um, regulator. Okay. We haven't talked about histamine yet, but we will get there. Right? So here's another clicker question, which won't work because of our extreme dependency on internet connectivity. And so the idea here is, is recognizing something about these cofactors or these molecules and what they do. So you should be able to do that for each of these. And of course, the answer here is, is that we're talking about the phenylethanolamine and methyltransferase and how that's important for using S-adenosylmethionine uh, for uh, this uh, methylation reaction, converting norepinephrine into epinephrine. Okay? So I think it's important to think about tetrahydrobiopterin because there's a confusing um, aspect to the PKU, pro, pro, phenylketonuria. So we spend a lot of time talking about phenylketonuria because it's such a classic metabolic disorder and it's so easily treated. So if we think about the cofactor for those ring hydroxylations, BH4 or tetrahydrobiopterin, we spoke about the three main reactions that rely on this cofactor, formation of tyrosine from phenylalanine, formation of L-DOPA from tyrosine, and conversion of tryptophan to 5-hydroxytryptophan. Okay, so it turns out then that if you have a patient might exhibit elevated phenylalanine levels, but they don't really respond well to phenylalanine restriction. And you might say, well, what's going on with this? And this is exactly how PKU was discovered, is PKU2. Sometimes you'll see it in some textbooks as malignant PKU. And the prognosis of PKU2 is always more severe than the prognosis for PKU1. And the reason for this is, is that you're not just affecting formation of tyrosine from phenylalanine, you're affecting other things as well, critical things such as the catecholamine, hormones and neurotransmitters, as well as the formation of serotonin. Now you go back and you think, well, we can treat that. Why don't we just give that saproterin molecule? But the problem there is, is that it doesn't want to cross the blood-brain barrier very easily. And of course, you need dopamine and sometimes uh, epinephrine in the brain, or norepinephrine, and you also need serotonin in the brain. So you need this activity to make up neurotransmitters in the brain as well. So it's very, very difficult to uh, treat um, this particular disorder, this PKU2. So showing how this, this works, you have, uh, remember we had a, a deficiency either in the formation, the synthesis of dihydrobiopterin. Remember the biopterin 
molecule is not really considered a vitamin. It can be synthesized endogenously in our own bodies, right? So we can make it ourselves. And then once we've formed this uh, BH2, dihydrobiopterin, it's reduced by an enzyme called dihydrobiopterin reductase. And BH, that's di this reductase, of course, gets its electrons for that reduction from NADPH, like typically any reduction reaction would. And of course, you remember where NADPH comes from, right? The pentose phosphate pathway, right, from glucose. It represents the, the hexose monophosphate shunt. So we have plenty of NADPH around as long as we have glucose. We can keep this thing active so that we can convert di dihydrobiopterin to BH4. And as long as we have BH4, this reaction will function with a functional enzyme. So if you have a deficiency in this BH2 synthesis, the whole pathway, right? There's a whole pathway for it. I'm not going to talk about it. Or you have a deficiency in the enzyme, the reductase, then you will have a deficiency in the conversion of phenylalanine to tyrosine. So tyrosine becomes uh, limiting. Phenylalanine goes really high. The patient has a PKU, basically. They're going to have their Phenylpyruvic acid, phenylactic acid, all of the symptoms that you would have for PKU, but you're also going to have problems forming catecholamines, and you're also going to have problems forming serotonin, right? Okay, so all this becomes a problem. Okay, so I just said all that. I'm not going to read that to you. That wouldn't be fair, right? So... Another way of, of, of looking at this, we have dihydrobiopterin synthesis forms the enzyme. Then we reduce that enzyme to tetrahydrobiopterin, and then that's useful for converting phenylalanine to tyrosine on the enzyme phenylalanine hydroxylase. So we're going to have all of these uh, problems together. And so this is why we can always say that the prognosis for a person with PKU2 is always worse than the prognosis for a person with PKU1. Okay. So... I'm going to let you explain this later to your study buddy, right? Okay. So we'll change gears. Enough said about PKU and the different kinds of PKU, right? So we think, let's just summarize that for a second. We had PKU1, we had maternal PKU, because it's a teratogen, and we discussed the importance for lifelong adherence of that dietary restriction in PKU. And then we also can talk about PKU2, where we have deficiency of the cofactor and use of the cofactor. So, so PKU kind of illustrates all of those aspects of that disorder with a very, very nice example. So we also can talk about other kinds of products from an amino acid, and one of those is the formation of GABA, gamma aminobutyric acid from glutamate, and it, this is a decarboxylation reaction, so of course it requires B6, and the idea here is, is that this GABA is not a wasted molecule. It can be recycled and converted back into glutamate when needed in, in a neuron. So... Um, Enough said. Yeah. Okay. So let's do another quicker question. Oh, it's not working, is it? Uh, what's the right answer, of course, is uh, the neurotransmitter is formed by... This is usually a 60% question. So what's the right answer? Is one the right answer? No. No, no. Because that's going to form... That's going to form. Yeah, that's going to form epinephrine. It's not PNMT. That's going to form epinephrine. It's not tyrosine hydroxylase. That's going to form L-dopa. 
Lyme is going to degrade it. So, of course, we're decarboxylating L-DOPA to form dopamine. Okay? Okay. Now, this, of course, is a trick question which doesn't have the smiley faces. So instead of forcing you to sit through it, uh, we form serotonin from tryptophan, of course, requiring uh, uh, BH4. We need BH4 to form tyrosine from... To, no, we need it to form conversion of phthalate to tyrosine, conversion of serotonin, and conversion of... Where did it go? This one, right? Formation of serotonin. Conversion of tyrosine to L-DOPA. So anyway, so these are, there's two right answers here. Formation of serotonin from tryptophan is correct. Formation of... That's not correct because it would be L-DOPA. If we cross this out and made it L-DOPA, then it would be correct. Right? Okay. We see that? Okay. So we also have histamine, very important molecule that mediates um, inflammatory um, responses, allergic responses and inflammatory responses. And this is also really important for regulation of gastric acid secretion. So histamine is a direct, um, uh, in a single step, we can easily uh, decarboxylate histidine as an amino acid using uh, PLP uh, vitamin B6 to decarboxylate. And of course, carbon dioxide comes off and you form histamine. So some things about uh, Antihistamines. We've all probably taken an antihistamine at some point in our lives, such as Benadryl, this kind of molecule. And we should recognize that antihistamines don't affect the formation of histamine itself. It affects the ability for histamine to interact with its receptor and signal to other pathways. And there is now some new class of drugs where they're looking at other ways to actually reduce this, but I'm not sure where they are with that. So... Um, the, another point about this is that usually, in most people, there's never a reason to try to get more histamine production. People have no problem making histamine, typically. So we have two kinds of uh, histamine, uh, or histamine receptors. There's a tip, the traditional H1 blocker mediating uh, allergy responses. So that's like we're talking about Benadryl. So here's a person with a rash or hay fever or peanut allergies. And then the H2 blocker, which is the H2 receptor is what's found in the uh, stomach for regulation of uh, gastric acid secretion and stuff like Zantac interferes with that. And that's why Zantac is an effective uh, antacid. Okay. So we change gears talking about another uh, derivative of a nitrogen-containing product is creatine. So creatine, you've heard of already a few times. Creatine, I think about it as, as an energy um, uh, buffer in your muscle cells, and it's also found in the brain as well. So, so creatine as an, energy, as, as an energy buffer, in a sense, what it's allowing to happen is during the first few seconds of, a, of vigorous muscular contractions, physical vigorous muscle exercise, right? You, uh, the first muscle contraction is happening from hydrolysis of available ATP, right? So boom, I use the ATP. But now you have the formation of ADP and inorganic phosphate. So in order to put that back together, you need glycolysis or TCA cycle. But those pathways take a few seconds to respond to that. They might take a second and a half or two seconds, something like that. So what can allow that muscle contraction to continue 
And what is done then is, is that creatine phosphate is able to donate that high energy bond back into ADP to reform ATP to allow, to fill that gap, that temporal gap. Right, so the first time you bench press that 285, boom, did it. Right? The next one right away, you're using your creatine phosphate. That's why some weightlifters like to take creatine supplements. I don't know if it works or not. Some swear it does. Okay. So, um, so creatine itself, creatine itself <coughs> is converted spontaneously. It's oxidized to creatinine. And creatinine is now a metabolic dead end. It's a dead end a product, and it goes to the uh, kidney for excretion into the urine. So basically, if there's any elevated levels of circulating uh, creatinine in circulation, that's uh, indicative of renal, renal uh, failure or compromised uh, kidney system. And as well, that the formation of uh, creatinine is directly proportional to the amount of muscle mass that a person has. So Arnold Schwarzenegger in his heyday, right, when he was as big as he ever was, he was the bigger as a house or whatever, he had more circulating uh, and, or more creatinine in his urine than any one of us uh, normal people because he had, of course, more, more muscle mass than us. Right? So here's the idea that uh, creatine in the, the, in the unphosphorylated state, when ATP levels are high, it drives the formation of creatine phosphate Right, in the resting cell, in the resting cell, and then of course, when you're doing your bench press or vigorous muscular exercise, boom, pushing it up, and then you do it again, boom, right, their second rep, then the creatine phosphate is driving the synthesis of ATP, acting in a sense as an energy buffer so that TCA cycle and glycolysis can keep up. So resting state, contracting state. And the creatine and the creatine phosphate can spontaneously um, oxidized to creatinine, where it's a metabolic uh, dead end and excreted in the urine. Okay. So you've already heard, I think, also that the creatine kinase and its various isoforms can be very useful for looking at, say, um, uh, uh, muscle tissue damage. Right? So the, after a, a heart attack, then the various ratios of the creatine kinase muscle brain isoforms can be indicative of that. It's also for a disorder like Duchenne muscular dystrophy, a person that has Duchenne muscular dystrophy, you're going to expect to see elevated levels of uh, creatine and creatine kinase in circulation. Uh, and then as well as a, a woman who's a carrier of a mutation associated with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So she might not show symptoms herself, but most women that are carriers also show elevated levels of creatine kinase. So we also can follow muscle atrophy uh, as we would see uh, let's say a person's in a coma over several years, we would expect to see, and as we have muscle, muscular atrophy, you would see a decrease in the amount of creatinine measured in their urine, as well as uh, serum creatinine should never be observed, and so it's, uh, if you see it, it's indicative of uh, kidney function failure. So nitric oxide is another one of these molecules that's related to or, or, um, or, or, or is formed from an amino acid itself. So Nitric oxide, if you think about it as a, as a molecule, it's a gaseous molecule. It's also a free radical. So as a gaseous molecule, it means that it can easily cross membranes. As a free radical, it also should make sense that it's going to be rapidly scavenged and taken up and detoxified because you can't have that kind of thing flying around because it's, it's, not, not, it's, it's toxic. So that, in a sense, makes it a very ideal signaling molecule because you can give a signal and then turn that signal off waiting for you can have rapid responses and homeostasis this way. 
So the, uh, this nitric oxide causes local vasodilation. And of course, this is something that's been capitalized on for more than 100 years because it's been used to uh, um, treat angina be due to um, uh, constricted blood vessels in the heart. And so then you, because in a sense what you're doing is you're just causing um, um, uh, vasodilation to, to allow more blood flow, right? So the uh, action of this nitric oxide is, is, it could be thought of as part of a, of, a, of, a, of a pathway. So the formation of nitric oxide activates an enzyme called guanylate cyclase. And just like you recall hearing about uh, cyclic AMP, this forms cyclic GMP, and that cyclic GMP becomes a signal to ask for blood vessels to relax and increase, increase blood flow. And of course, drugs like, I can't pronounce it, is it sildenafil or something like that? Anyway, you note it as Viagra, will inhibit the, the, de the, the, the enzyme that degrades cyclic GMP, and of course, this is how um, uh, Viagra functions to treat, um, to treat erectile dysfunction. And it turns out, actually, and maybe most of us know this story, it's a classic story, where Viagra, this drug, was actually originally being tested to treat angina and to treat um, heart patients, cardiac patients. It turned out that these heart patients had this side effect that they were talking about, right? So that's what it got marketed for. So we also need to talk about melanin. Melanin is the... Uh, uh, when we, is a traditional molecule we think of when we think about skin pigmentation. And this is an, uh, a description of a patient that has uh, snow white hair, dark sunglasses, he has white skin, he has photosensitivity, poor eyesight, he, cut, he gets severe sunburns just in a, in a very brief amount of, amount of time. And so even with lots of sunscreen and his parents' best efforts, he still gets really bad, bad burns. So this is an example of a cutaneous um, uh, uh, albinism as a deficiency of the tyrosinase enzyme. And so this would be an example of an autosomal recessive form of albinism. It turns out there's many, many different types of albinism, but they all basically have, in the end, the same effect. It reduces the formation or the deposition of uh, melanin and skin uh, pigmentation molecules. And so just to give you an example of this, this is where I make my final joke of the semester to you where I say memorize all of these structures, right? That's ridiculous. But the whole idea is, is that we have all of these various kinds of, uh, you know, skin pigmentation and coloration is a very heterogeneous uh, a group of, of, of molecules and a lot of them actually don't exist this way in the pigments, they're actually polymerized, right? And that's what gives us our, our skin and, and coloring pigmentation. And so there's some is found to like make color bodies in neural tissue, some for the eyes, some for the skin, all this kind of thing. Okay, so it's really a polymer derived from these molecules. But the key point here is, is that these things are all derived from, from tyrosine. So they're all derived from phenylalanine to tyrosine to uh, melanin. Okay, so uh, we also should make sure we remember, if we're thinking about phenylalanine, don't forget that phenylalanine can be converted to tyrosine, and tyrosine can be taken up into the thyroid gland, and in the thyroid gland, the tyrosine can then become iodinated. When we say iodinated, that means iodine atoms will decorate the thyroid, uh, I mean, will decorate the tyrosine amino acids on the thyroglobulin protein. Then they can be put together to form uh, T3 and T4 as they're released off of that protein as an example of post-translational modification. And of course, this thyroid hormone is very important for regulation of the basal metabolic rate. 
Right? So <clears throat> thinking about this, right, putting this kind of together with what we talked about the last hour, all of the different examples that we gave talking about phenylalanine, how phenylalanine converting to tyrosine is important for PKU1, PKU2, maternal PKU, and the cofactors. Then we also have the formation of all the catecholamine hormones, formation of pigment, formation or regulation of basal metabolic rate. And of course, not forgetting that we need these essential amino acids for synthesis of anabolic proteins, anabolic protein synthesis, as well as, as the various catabolic errors that might happen if we're just trying to dispose of excess amino acids, the, the, the alkaptonuria and the tyrosinemia. So lots of examples of metabolic um, importance for showing, showing from, from phenylalanine. So glutathione is another molecule that's derived from or created from, from amino acids. And so glutathione is a tripeptide, and the business end of the glutathione is the sulfur that's coming off of the cysteine amino acid. And so basically, I think about glutathione as a way for the cell to get a sulfur group as a sulfhydryl so that it can use that reducing power to function with reactions that it wants to deal with. And so you've heard of this, I think. Hopefully, you've already heard about it. We're, we're talking about the detoxification of hydrogen peroxide, especially in the red blood cells, right? So the red blood cells, remember, they don't have a nucleus. There's no DNA in the red blood cell. So any proteins that are found in the red blood cell were put there during hematopoiesis. So the red blood cell has the enzymes for glycolysis. The red blood cell has the enzymes for the hexose monophosphate pathway. And the job of the hexose monophosphate pathway in the red blood cell is to keep the sulfur group in glutathione in the reduced form so that there will always be plenty of glutathione in the red cell to keep hydrogen peroxide at low concentrations. Because if hydrogen peroxide goes high, that means it's going to oxidize membranes on the red blood cell, and then you're going to have anemia. Right? So, so that's how it serves as a reductant, a very important uh, form. Uh, it also, this, this molecule can also be used to conjugate to various kinds of, of drugs to make them more water-soluble to get them excreted out of the body. It can serve as a cofactor for some enzymatic reactions. Important also for rearrangement of protein disulfide bonds if you want to reduce them and then allow them to reform as um, uh, uh, disulfide bonds between cysteines. And so uh, this is, picture is really just basically an overview of what's going on with the, the first few steps of the, of the hexose monophosphate uh, pathway where glucose is converted to glucose 6-phosphate and then the glucose 6-phosphate through the enzyme G6PD, that's glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase enzyme, that's the first step or the, the first few steps in, or the first step of the, the, the pentose phosphate pathway where we're producing NADPH. And as long as you have NADPH, you can keep glutathione in this reduced form. So we talk about GSH as the reduced form because it has the hydrogen, and GSSG, there's the disulfide between the two sulfurs as the oxidized form. So this is one of the reasons why when you talk about intracellular proteins, we say the intracellular environment is a reducing environment. There's lots of electrons around to keep things in the reduced state. If you compare that to the extracellular environment, especially thinking about the protein insulin, insulin as a hormone, insulin has disulfide bonds in it because it's not intracellular, it's in the blood doing its job. 
So we have those really important disulfide bonds between the alpha, the A and B chain of, of insulin. Okay, so basically the reduced glutathione keeps uh, hydrogen peroxide, it, re it detoxifies it to, to water. Okay, and this is the same idea. Here we have G, that's glutathione with its SH, and GSH, this is the reduced form, and here's the oxidized form. Okay, all right. So I'm going to finish here, and now you can really clap because we're finished early, right? <laughs> These, yeah, and then, um, oh, we have a quicker question. Sorry, <laughs> right? <laughs> I thought we were done, but there it is, yeah, right. You know this answer, right? Avoid sunlight because he has a problem with melanin, right? So you should understand these other responses and pick the disorder where we're going to. And this is never an answer. Never administer histamine, right? Okay. Oh. Okay. This is, I promise you, is the last one. And then we can clap for being done early. All right, so this is something to think about. This is traditionally a very difficult concept, and I think it's a good idea to present this before we uh, finish for this section. And why is my favorite answer here number two? I choose leucine. Who chooses leucine? Who disagrees with me? And why am I, am I going this way? Okay? The reason is, is that leucine is an essential amino acid. Leucine is an essential amino acid. Aspartate, non-essential amino acid, we can make it off of the TCA cycle if you have a nitrogen. Glutamate is not an essential amino acid. You can make it off of the TCA cycle if you have alpha ketoglutarate and nitrogen. Glycine is the simplest amino acid. We didn't describe it, but take my word for it. It's very simple. It's just a degradation product of another amino acid. So we can make these guys as we want them. L-DOPA, the brain will not take in L-DOPA, right? If it can help it, the brain will prefer it if the body doesn't try to give L-DOPA. So we have a lot of DOPA decarboxylase enzymes in our body so that we don't let L-DOPA get into the brain. If you have a patient with Parkinson's disease, how do you get L-DOPA to go from, we take a pill, how do you get the L-DOPA that's in that pill to get into the brain? What do you have to do? You have to take a systemic or in circulation, you have to have a DOPA decarboxylase inhibitor, and then it will function. So that's how, that's why when a patient with Parkinson takes that drug, it's a combination pill. It's a formula that has both the inhibitor and the L-DOPA amino acid. The L-DOPA itself, if it was there in circulation, certainly it would cross because it would cross across the same transporter as leucine would, large neutral amino acid transporter. It'll go, but it's typically degraded before it has a chance, right? And that's why, in a sense, this is a trick question, right? I wanted to discuss that with you. Unfortunately, the learning tool of the clickers was taken away. So we did our best. Oh, there's the rationale. I just said that, though. Okay. So um, thank you, and sorry that the clickers didn't work, but it, you know, we dealt with it. We dealt with it because we're strong. <laughs>